welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is a podcast where we talk about 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. This is volume 2, meaning 2010 to 2019. We are firmly in 2019 with not many episodes to go. This is episode 48, Knives Out. My name is Matt Waters. I'm joined, as always, by Ben Phillips. This is my last time hosting as you get the final two. Ben, how does it feel to be closing out? Uh, the, the pressure is enormous, right? <laughs> mostly because it's like two movies you haven't seen, and ah. I think they're two movies you're gonna like. This is the last safe haven of the movie series. <laughs> I would have watched one of them literally months ago, and I was like, ah, why watch it twice if I'm gonna have to? And I sort of regret it now, but like, it's not one where I'm like, oh, I don't know about this. It's one I was like very enthusiastic to see. So yeah, I'm going into my third watches of both of them. <laughs> this was my second watch of Knives Out, uh, and I still really enjoy it. This was selected by both of us. However, Benjamin Phillips, who set all the rules on this podcast, who is a stickler for rules, and was like, oh, we have to make sure we spread everything out, no repeat directors, nothing that we've already covered, was like, but could we do The Last Jedi? (laughs) And I said no. In theory, this episode is coming out in what will be Star Wars Week at EnterTheRealWorld.com. Then might get to talk about The Last Jedi after all. But yes, there will be an absolute ton of Star Wars content. It makes sense that, you know, we can't stop this podcast or we will run out of days in the year. The, the one by uh, Ryan Johnson should be in Star Wars Week. Yeah. But yeah. Only Star Wars director that we could have possibly covered. Like, I mean, well, I most guess of them are fucking done. shit, so... Well, that's the thing is, like, none of the other Star Wars directors have directed a movie in this decade, and I don't think either of us would want to talk about any of J.J. Abrams' movies well, from this decade. It's Ron Howard. I like Rush and almost none of his other films. And we talked about Chef. Wait, Favreau did The Mandalorian, that doesn't count. It's not a movie. I'm just trying to think now, like, I mean, I guess that is true. We've talked about, um... We have talked not about on this podcast, but we yeah, won't do yeah. Super 8. I guess, I mean, like, Spider-Verse would have been a possibility, but they don't count as directors on Solo. Or Spider-Verse. <laughs> Either way. Uh, Knives Out, the defining Trumpian work. Maybe. Uh, was this a possible answer to that that went around the internet? That, like, if Hamilton is the defining piece of artwork of the Obama era, era what is the one for Trump? I don't think this is specifically Trump enough. This just it's feels got a like, little bit of it in there, though. It like, does. It feels more like a commentary on, like, internet culture more than anything. And obviously, like, <laughs> this movie feels like something that Ryan Johnson has to excise from his being after. What? You, you mean Ryan Johnson got harassed after The Last Jedi by one? the internet fanboys and then he wrote a character's son to be them incarnate i don't know what you're talking about i will say that while i it would be extreme to say it is like fully about that it had more of that in it than i expected going into it and i was like pleasantly surprised at the social commentary aspect i was just there's a recording in one of our many podcasts well, we're like, Knives Out could be fucking awesome. And then we watched it and it was, but like, knowing that this was going to be his next film and just seeing the cast list and it was a detective story, I was like, sold. Immediately sold. Like, this is a murderer's row of a cast. The very concept of Daniel Craig and Lakeith Stanfield as a buddy cop duo, and it isn't quite that, it turned out, in the final product, but going in, you were like, oh, they're going to be partners, that'll be cool. I mean, I I think it is interesting, because obviously this comes a couple of years after Murder on the Orient Express, which feels (laughs) like the first big movie attempt at doing this kind of thing in quite a while. You've got Kenneth Branagh, you've got an all-star cast, they make pretty much the same amount of money at the worldwide box office. Wow, okay. I thought nobody saw that. (laughs) I mean, people will go see that kind of thing. I don't know what the split is in terms of international and 
and domestic. And, and I guess that one feels a little bit more like mums will go and see this kind of thing. And there is a surprising amount of power in that <laughs> that we learn every time that kind of film comes out. I think there's a difference in terms of like, this movie comes out and there's a whole lot of excitement. Like this doesn't mm. have a brand name attached to it. This is almost entirely running off of the strength of Ryan Johnson and the cast, really. Yeah, I remember that being, like, one of the big things, is like, oh my god, it's a non-franchise movie that's made some fucking money. Maybe there's hope after all. Yeah, and obviously the immediate reaction to that is Lionsgate immediately <laughs> commission a sequel starring Daniel Craig, which... Yeah, and it's like, mm, as long as it's just Daniel Craig, I guess I'm okay with it. But, like, yeah, a- an immediate sequel to a one-off self-contained story is, like, classic Hollywood. Yeah, especially because people were expecting this to be, like, what Ryan Johnson did to kind of palate cleanse himself before he jumps into doing his Star Wars trilogy, which is, like, the biggest enigma in Hollywood right now, where it's like, is he still doing a Star Wars trilogy? I don't think so. I think they took it from him because people were, like, so mad about Lost. But that's Um, the thing, is, like, they haven't made an official comment on it. Like, obviously, they they fully and officially cancelled the the Davids, didn't they? But I guess he could still be, but I feel like they're cooling on how much Star Wars they're doing in general. That's the thing, is, like, they've said that they've got, like, these... There's Star Wars on the schedule at Disney that's going to be, like, alternating with Avatar. And obviously they've now had an extra year of development, presumably, to figure out, like, what they want to do. Because mm. COVID has utterly destroyed everything. And yeah. basically 2021 is going to be what 2020 should have been in terms of movies. And what few blockbusters have come out this year, like your Mulans, your Wonder Woman coming out on Christmas Day and stuff like that. Those are going to be outliers and 2021 is functionally just going to be everything we were supposed to get this year. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked to see them delay them even further because there is this naive belief that like, ah, 2021, COVID's done. It's like, well, no. like oh, yeah. no, that, That's like have... less than a month. Oh, it's just over a month away. Like. Yeah, we're still going to have COVID but like, I imagine people are sat there going like, bye, June time, we will get some returns from a cinema. Well, then why release Bond in April kind of thing, you know? Like... <sighs> Who knows? Maybe they're saying, like, maybe people will go celebrate getting their COVID shot by going to go see Bond <laughs> the day after. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, this feels like what Joss Whedon did after Avengers, where he goes off to make something fun and low-budget, low-stakes. And yeah. then, obviously, it's a runaway success, and Ryan Johnson has gone to write a script. I don't know whether or not... Because part of the fun of this is it's a traditional murder mystery, but... Except it's not. <laughs> except it's not, but it's still, it still follows the exact tropes of it. it is, it's subversive, but not subversive in a way that breaks the back of like how yeah. this kind of story is supposed to work which i think is what makes this movie so goddamn fun 30 minutes into the movie they're like right you here's what happened it. yeah like i think i've heard people actually criticize it for not being a real whodunit because you know in 30 minutes and i'm like but that's the fun is watching marta like bumbling along trying to cover her tracks kind of thing i'm sure in the sequel that won't happen and it will be a little bit more of a traditional one but like yeah that always shocked me when i would see that as a criticism of i mean i guess guess it is like people going in and it's why merge on the orange express does so well it's why they immediately commission a sequel to that movie and Mm. do another classic agatha christie like immediately afterwards and get the same amount of cast is there's a comfort to this kind of thing Mm. and some people don't like to be challenged and (laughs) possibly i'm saying this is like this is why last jedi is not a popular star wars movie with an awful lot of people is because it does things that they don't want to see from star wars yeah what are you doing with your deep themes and (laughs) (laughs) 
and meaning and stuff. Make the good guy be good, damn it. Yeah. But, but yeah, that, I mean, that's that's the thing is like some people are going to see this movie thinking it's going to be a traditional whodunit. And I do think there's, again, it doesn't break the back of it. The movie still ends with the big confrontation of like explaining everything that's gone down. It's just yeah. <laughs> everything's flipped 90 degrees. Whatever a sequel is, you lose the ace in the hall of Anity Armors, I assume. Like, unless they figured out a way to do the same thing again. He brings his lie detector, his living lie detector with him. <laughs> well, like, she doesn't really detect, she tells, but yeah. Yeah, uh, but like, it being, it being based around Daniel Craig, you have to imagine that it does have to be a little bit more traditional mm. in the way that it does this stuff. I'm just trying to think if there's anyone I would, because I can't even say, like, Lakeith should come back because he's just nah. a detective who works for it, or, like, Noah Segan who plays Trooper <laughs> Wagner. Ryan Johnson said this is the most Noah Se- you know, this is the closest he's gotten to showing Noah, Noah Segan's true self on screen um, <laughs> after putting him in everything he does. Including Breaking Bad. And The Last Jedi. I don't know who he is. I know that there's a name written down and it's a Star Wars ass name. I'm like, if you say so. I mean, you know, he, so speaking of that, like, you know, he first worked with him on Brick, which was his first major movie. He's had the idea for this in his head since Brick. He wanted to make it after Looper, didn't get around to it, did The Last Jedi, and then, as you say, like, after finishing the press tour, it's like, right, sit down, write Knives Out, cleanse the soul. And it's like, oh, look, what a triumphant movie this is. So it was released November 27th, 2019. So quite a short amount of time remains for us to squeeze in two movies for 2019. Opened the same day in the UK and the US. Benjamin, as we said, it is a surprising box office hit. So why don't you talk about, in addition to its opening weekend, just the highest grossing movies of 2019? I bet I know what's number one. Right, so in the UK, obviously, it opening in November means it's coming out behind one of the juggernauts of the year, because last year is the year that Disney were just like, dick on the table, we're going to have so many of the top ten, and including some like surprise movies hitting the top ten. Uh, it's Frozen 2, a number one with $11 million equivalent of the UK box office, just an absolute monster of a movie that isn't that good. My hot take. Uh, number two, Knives Out. Decent four million haul for this kind of movie. Again, like no brand recognition. It's just coasting entirely off names and whatnot. And goes on to be a bumper success, 300 million at the worldwide box office. Can't really complain about that when you make a movie for $40 million. Do you reckon Chris Evans is dragging a lot of people into this? He was certainly in a, an appealing part of it for me. Like getting to see him do something like this after exiting his decade-long Odyssey as Cap kind of thing. I mean, he, he had done some movies in between. I haven't seen any of them. But there's this sense of excitement of, like, what's he going to do next? And it seemed like just a really fun role. You know, and the trailer's hit, and he's just this fucking shitty little asshole. And it's like, oh, I will see that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, just, I, I don't think there is a main draw. But, like, if anyone is, him having the year that he has at the box office kind of does potentially get people... Like, people are interested to see all of the first moves from a lot of these actors after the movies, although obviously... Got some of them are do-little. Some of them are do-little, <laughs> which people still did go see. Ah, well, thank you. Good for him, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, do-little will end up in the top ten highest grossing movies of 2020. That is a thing that's going to happen. Uh, but other movies <laughs> that we play box office this weekend, Last Christmas, which I like. I'm on an island on this I know, you, you know, you've said it more than once, so I'm not going to challenge you on it. <laughs> I don't know, like, I mean, it's obvious what the twist is, but it's just, it's fun, it's cheesy, it's a nice Christmas movie. Blue Story, Charlie's Angels, number five, which is just disappointing. Ford v Ferrari, 21 Bridges, Joker, Procedure <laughs> at number nine. And number 10, potentially the, the most undersung classic on this list, CBB's Christmas Show 2019, Hansel and Gretel. 
we don't, we don't have time to explain that to anyone. Making one hundred seventy-eight thousand dollars equivalent of the UK. Wow, politics. look at it go! Didn't they just put that on TV? Is my confusion. I would assume they did. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that is the top 10 UK box office the weekend it comes out. But it's talk about 2019 in general, which, uh, number one, Matthew, mm. a little movie called Avengers Endgame. Not as good as Infinity War, carry on. <laughs> number two, Lion King, not as good as The Lion King. <laughs> yep. Number three, Frozen 2, not as good as Frozen. Okay. Number four, Spider-Man Far From Home, not as good as Spider-Man Homecoming. Good, keep going. <laughs> number five, Captain Marvel, not as good as Wonder Woman. Sure, yeah. Number six, Joker, not as good as anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> number seven, Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker, not as not good as, as Star Wars Last Episode Jedi. Episode. <laughs> number eight, Toy Story 4, not as good as any <laughs> of the other Toy Story movies. Aladdin, not as good as Aladdin. Aladdin. <laughs> Jumanji, The Next Level, not as good as Jumanji or Into the Jungle. <laughs> Is that the name of the first one? Who, who could care? I know everyone liked it. That's the top ten at the box office. Um, that worked out really nicely. <laughs> I had to struggle to think of some of those. So where does Knives Out fall in that? A decent 28th place, just behind John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. That's not bad. I mean, you're not going to be able to quickly look at this. Is, is it the highest, like, original, non-sequel, non-franchise, non-adaptation-y type thing? No, I mean, there's a couple of things. Like, you've got things like The Wandering Earth, which was this huge, huge, huge success in China. Okay. Which doesn't make much money. I think it's on Netflix in the US. But a huge original science fiction movie from China makes... $700 million in China alone. It's a Jeez. massive success over there, but doesn't really get similar play outside of, of China. But, like, in terms of, like, big movies that aren't related to franchises, you've got things like 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, just just pipping this. And obviously, John Wick Chapter 3 is obviously just behind it, but that is franchisey, but it's still an original yeah. homegrown franchise. And I guess, like, we sang the praises of John Wick for being an original thing, so I can't really now hammer it for being a franchise. Yeah, but, <laughs> so, like, almost, yeah. almost everything above it that is an original is coming from an established director yeah. like Sam Mendes or Tarantino, or mm. it's something that's got China money and it's making all of its money in China. Like, yeah, yeah. Nizar, the Wandering, the Wandering Earth, The Captain, My People, My Country, all of them, the domestic gross is 0.5% of its total, 0.9% of its total, 0.2% of its total, 0.6% of its total. They're just mm. movies that are getting more play in Asia than they are anywhere else. Also, come on, 1917, like World Wars 1 and 2 are a franchise, let's be honest. <laughs> you could functionally put together like, a cinematic universe of like how Charles <laughs> World War 2 and World War 1 just using movies that have been made about them. I assume Wonder Woman is in there. Yeah, the very factual, canonical Wonder yeah. Woman. So, let's talk Knives Out, a movie I <laughs> said to Ben last night I was scared to try and talk about because it's so plotty. Probably going to burrow down very deeply in the first half hour hours worth and then we'll move a bit quicker because as a general comment because this is my gimmick i think it's too long and i would shave some of the second half down a bit it's still a fun fun time so acclaimed mystery writer harlan thromby a name that would have to be fictional is discovered dead in his home of apparent suicide and the police gather his family and his carer to interview them so before we get into those interviews i just wanted to just i really like that the first time we see Anna, on a second watch, when you know everything, she wakes up looking kind of guilty, and her sister is watching something on a tablet where Joseph Gordon-Levitt, working for free, says, you killed him! And that's the first thing you hear after you see Anna. And it's just like, mwah, excellent stuff. 
I do like that Joseph Gordon-Levitt will just continue to show up in these Ryan Johnson movies as, like, vocal cameos. Like, Yeah, working for Speck, you know, he supports that, so <laughs> that's a very also... niche comment about how he tries to exploit artists and get stuff for free. <laughs> it is funny that, like, obviously, Joseph Gordon-Levitt disappears after Snowden. Like, he hasn't made a movie between <laughs> yeah. then and Project Power. So, like, for four years, oh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt God, kind of fucks off. so bad. <laughs> the two things that he does, really, are his vocal cameo in Last Jedi and his vocal cameo in Knives Out. That's a weird one. What's happening with Joseph Gordon-Levitt? I mean, he's back with Trial of Chicago 7. I mean, who knows? Maybe he ends up with an Oscar nomination this year because the Oscars are so fucking weird. I don't think he's a favourite. I love a historical drama. There's so many acts in that movie and I think every single man in that movie is submitting and supporting so they could completely (laughs) cannibalise that category. Before they actually start getting interviewed, like, the family are so kind to Marta and how you doing, kiddo, she gets from both Linda and Richard and and Meg Objecting to her being called the help by the police and like by the end of it Meg actually probably is the only other nice one but they established this early on and it's kind of what I was alluding to earlier is like I came into this not expecting to get sort of social commentary on like how middle class wealthy people treat A immigrants and B just sort of like everyone else kind of thing that that it digs into this sort of centrists who think they're left wing but are actually possibly right wing like the political beliefs like all of that like I didn't expect uh, yeah I think any this movie more than anything is an indictment of liberal politics Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that like Brian Johnson is the far, the furthest left person who ever furthest left it, but like <laughs> very obviously there is a, a lot of kind of look at these people who are proclaiming that they are progressive and like interested in these things, but at the end of the day, if you threaten their money, they will do whatever they can to protect their money, which yeah, is accurate. <laughs> yeah, and it's the sort of thing that you end up with these people, and you sort a lot in the in this election cycle where a lot of people were talking about saying like, I mean, normally I'd vote for Biden, but like all the tax things that have been put forward just make me think that maybe Trump's the better option for me. <sighs> when will idiots stop falling for lines about taxes in U.S. elections? Like, I feel this has been the Republicans have run off of taxes for decades and decades and decades and people keep falling for it. Because the entire idea behind it is if we protect the taxes of the richest people someday I'll be rich and my taxes will be be protected. Spoilers, you won't be. So, they each recount their version of events from a party the night before, you know, the the last time Harlan was seen alive for the police and private detective Benoit Blanc. So, as I said, I was immediately sold on Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Craig together. The accent is objectively bad, but it's phenomenal. He leans so hard into it that even if every now and then there's an odd word he clearly doesn't know how to say in that accent, it's like, I don't care. He's having fun, so I'm having fun. Yeah, I mean, like, we, we spoke about this when we did uh, Secret Agent Men, where it's like, there was something about, by the end of his tenure as Bond, where it mm. felt like Craig was getting a bit bored of it all and every single time he puts one of these movies out it's always like this is my last one I'm not coming back and then someone unloads the truck full of money at his house (laughs) Raquel Weiss is used to a certain way of living you know (laughs) she doesn't act anymore apparently I don't know she's probably in a ton of stuff I haven't seen and that's very harsh of me but like you can tell it in the the things that he chooses and it's just quite funny that probably his two biggest performances (laughs) he does this side of this side of Skyfall are Logan Lucky and Knives Out which Mm -hmm. are just 
just him doing regional US accents and having a fucking whale of a time with characters yeah. who've got like incredibly amusing names of Joe Bang and Benoit Blanc. <laughs> Joe Bang is a great character. He feels like someone, and he's someone who I'm really excited to see get free of Bond because he's going to end up doing this kind of shit. And he yeah. looks like he's having fun and a whale of a time doing this. Even yeah. if it's objectively dumb, the way he <laughs> leans into it makes it kind of slot into place. Like after about yeah. five minutes, and I know there's people who are like real sticklers for accents in these kind yeah. of movies. And, like, a bad accent is enough to completely pull them out of the experience. Those people sat- are boring, so let's yeah. not talk about them. <laughs> sat there going, like, oh, no, I'm having so much fun and I can forget that he's doing an objectively dumb accent because, <laughs> like, when you get down to it and he's telling stories about donuts in the accent, it's like, yes, this is... A monologue he had to talk Ryan Johnson into keeping in the movie. <laughs> and, like, it helps because he does completely stand out. They comment on it that, like, he's the last of the gentleman sleuths. Like, he is, he is anachronistic in this obviously the house gives it sort of a less fixed in time perspective than it might have but then like it very clearly is modern times like you know people are using phones and everything but like yeah he feels like a throwback they are up in like massachusetts and he's like clearly not and then like you know to have him in the background like they keep him out of focus and he just chimes that piano every now and then to make Clickie Stanfield ask that one question. Building that mystery around him, it's, it's very effective. Originally, he was supposed to just tap his foot, but then they got to the place they were they were filming, and were like, oh, let's use this piano. And I think it, it plays better, because it just... I think it didn't need to be as subtle as a, as a shoe tap. Like, I think a piano is more, like, discomforting. Keeping him completely out of focus until... Is it Joni or Richard? Who, I think Joni says it first. Yeah, jo- and then Joni... Richard's like, who the fuck is that? You get, like, three of the piano taps from yeah. different members of the family, like, uh, and you get the reaction from Lakeith kind of going like, yes, okay, and what time did you arrive, like, trying to really, really play up this timeline idea of, like, yeah. when everyone gets the gets the party? And, of course, it's Tony Collette, who is just like, um, excuse me. Why are we here and who is that? Yeah. So let's talk about the family. Linda is Jamie Lee Curtis. She is fiercely proud of her little spin-off company. So Benoit will start pushing their buttons, but as she originally presents herself, she is, like, the adult of the children. Like, she made something of herself. She's just like her dad. They have this very close relationship and way of communicating all of this. Jamie Lee Curtis is great in the movie. (laughs) You know, the, the venom with which she attacks people is great. Don Johnson is playing her husband, Richard, who presents himself as more reasonable, but is very quickly established as obnoxious. Like, you know, the Hamilton quote, and, you know, we will learn that he was having an affair and that he was threatened by Harlan, basically. I, I just just a touch on the Hamilton line again. I think mm. it's so well dropped in that, of course, these people feel obligated to go see Hamilton, even with the way that he talks about immigrants later on in the movie, because he is not one of the ones who, like, hides his racism. Yeah, Don Johnson, what a comeback for him in the last couple of years. He's great in this, I think. When he hands Marta the plate without looking at her, that came from him as an idea, and it's just like, yeah, what a great little character be that he's just so openly racist in this way and everything. Walt, Michael Shannon, he runs the publishing company but doesn't own it, and Harlan was going to fire him. He has an alt-right Nazi child called Jacob, who is directly a response to the people that criticise The Last Jedi so vehemently, which is fun. Michael Shannon is so good at playing horrible people 
I think he is actually a very nice, incredibly funny man in real life. Ryan Johnson said that he came up with so many funny lines on the set for the whole family and everything, but like, he is just so laser pointed at playing horrible people. He is tall and he looks imposing, and it's why they keep on casting him in things like Boardwalk Empire, where he's like this big hulking person who's trying to like keep the laws intact for the prohibition. And like it's why he gets put into Man of Steel as Zod. It's because <laughs> he's got this big imposing energy. Hell, like even Shape of Water, where obviously he plays like a literal embodiment yeah. of a monster. Give him a stick and you give him a little bit of a hunch. And mm-hmm. I mean this feels like someone spotting that Michael Shannon can do this kind of thing and do it very, very well. I think he has had the opportunity to do like comedy or like a little bit more looser roles and stuff like that. But this is definitely the first one that I can think of in quite a while where he's having quite this level of And I'm just sort of thinking back to like when you first see it and you can't help but like try and be the detective while you're watching them all be interviewed and you're like, right, who do I think did it? He's got to be the early front runner because it's Michael Shannon and like he's like the heir to the Empire and all of that and then Benoit will basically offer up a potential motive for all of them to have possibly done it. So you end up with like, oh, okay, it could have been any of them. But yeah, just Michael Shannon's energy just makes him like an immediate front runner. Finally, you've got Tony Collette as Joni, who is the widow of one of Harlan's other sons. I guess the eldest, I don't know. But she's still treated as part of the family. And then it will do this throughout the movie where like they will be saying one thing in narration and the scene will show something else. Or they will kind of subvert that in a minute. But like she says how she would feel so supported and then you see her like dancing around the party while everyone fucking ignores her. And it's great. And yeah, she runs like a a skincare company or something like a it, beauty company it feels it. like she's a commentary of Gwyneth Paltrow in some ways like it feels oh, okay, very yeah. goopy in a deleted scene Benoit like purchased some of her cream and has like a massive rash and stuff like that and it's like the product doesn't work but her daughter Meg Catherine Langford potentially the only nice one her tuition was paid for by Harlan again you get these politics of like you have Linda like shit talking Meg as like a Marxist feminist whatever you know like you know <laughs> like she'll later be literally called a social justice warrior like all of that sort of stuff Benoit as I said like he pulls these he pushes these buttons where like stuff about Walt receiving handouts which bothers Linda who presents herself as a self-made person and you know by the end of it we will learn that she was given a million dollars to start her company kind of thing you know very Trump self-made man six million dollar loan or whatever Walt had constant arguments about he wants to license out the rights to all the novels blah 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 so they've all got reason to do it and then you have Ransom is missing he is Richard and Linda's son Chris Evans it's called Ransom which is heroic you know, they, they establish he's a rich layabout without you actually seeing him for the first, like, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, something like that. So yeah, that, that, that's like our family set up, as it were. And I love these interview scenes. The chair is unreal. The Thousand Knives chair that will pay off at the end of the movie. It makes for a great little backdrop for them to all be interrogated one by one. Is this a house that they come to and, like, this is just how it looked, or is this something that they had to, like, set decorate to to bring it up to this level of... I think it's a real house that they added some props to. Like, obviously the chair is custom, but, like, there's a little statue 
near Harlan's office that is taken from the movie Sleuth, which is one of the bigger influences on the movie. Yeah, so I think they, they dressed it up a bit. It's not that I don't like the rest of the movie or that I think it falls apart at a certain point or anything like that. I just, I love the first half hour to 45 minutes just so, 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 so much. I love it's, the vibe. It's a great examination of shorthand character development for all these yeah. characters. Because obviously, like, an awful lot of times in these kind of movies, they sometimes feel like you don't get enough time with a lot of the characters. Or, like, some of them get short shrift, or you just get a bunch of famous people in to say the, the couple of famous lines that they've got and stuff like that. <laughs> Whereas every single person gets a little standout moment here, or at least all the adults get little standout moments here. I think the children are a little bit less <laughs> well served in terms of these early scenes. You get standout moments for Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, and Tony Collette all very early on. And it carries through for the rest of the movie. And it helps, I think, that everyone spends time together. Like, this is a locked room mystery in a lot of ways. Yeah. And because of that, everyone is spending all of their time together and it allows so much more, like, rapidity and yeah. the ability to kind of, like, have them bounce off each other and develop their characters in that way. The power dynamics, the interpersonal dynamics, like, seeing who agrees with each other the quickest and who will turn on each other. And, it... and, it, and it's fun because you get to do the different combinations and, like, certain characters yeah. interacting with each other other is just like a grenade being tossed into a room ransom's first big scene in the movie where he shows up for the will reading is like throwing a grenade into the room because everyone is having yeah. to interact with this person who they haven't or we haven't as an audience seen them interact with beforehand it's getting a bit tense already and then he just comes in with his chaos and makes it worse so benoit takes great interest in marta who is his carer harlan's carer learning she vomits when she lies and he also reveals that he was hired anonymously which intrigues can we talk about this as a trend of 2019 quickly? Sure. It is utterly bizarre that characters vomiting at inopportune moments was like an actual trend in movies from last year. I think there were three, but like Knives Out and Hustlers both had characters who like an entire plot points hinge on them vomiting at like moments that isn't ideal. I can't remember what the third one is, but like it was definitely like you were going to the cinema and go like, oh, okay, there's another character who... <laughs> it feels like another of these throwback quirks to these pulpy detective-y stories where like characters have these just incredibly specific traits and stuff like that. Like it, she and Benoit like stand out from this ostensibly very normal realistic family kind of thing. Using this as like a lie detector test, he ends up taking her under his wing, but like, you know, establishing that he, she was Harlan's confidant. So like Benoit presents some of his guesses of like, was Richard having an affair? Was he going to fire Walt? was he going to cut off Joni? I think those are the three or something like that. And like, we see these flashbacks to when she's just spending time with this man and like, they have a nice little relationship and you'll see it really when, in a, in a minute when we see what actually happened. But her literally throwing up and then wanting to and the other questions sort of stuff. Yeah, it, it's just a fun little scene and like, Benoit having his little hunches that he, he, he keeps his cards close to his chest and then like, just sort of uses Marta to quietly like, confirm his findings kind of thing. I think the most impressive thing that this movie does is it makes Benoit be wrong but not in a way that makes him seem dumb. Because, like, every single one of his hunches plays out. He fully, fully understands what's going on with this family. The thing that throws him is he doesn't think Marta did it. 
because he doesn't think Marta's a bad person yes. who would want to do it. And so therefore, he has an implicit trust of her because she is implicitly trustworthy. Yes, but, you are inherently good, therefore you could not have done this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it and it does blind him to it. But the thing is, it's because all of the wrinkles behind the scenes that lead to what happens throw mm. him off in terms of like being a naturally good detective. And I, I, again, it's like a really, really nice balancing yeah. act where like they don't undermine... Benoit for trusting Marta because by the time by the time you find out what happens you implicitly trust Marta as well yeah and also like he does end up revealing he knew everything like he knew that she was involved like the final thing to skip ahead like most of the movie when she's like you're a lousy detective you're not a very good detective and he says you're a pretty lousy murderer (laughs) and then uh, he knew from the second he saw her there's the single spot of blood on her shoe that she didn't notice and you do actually see he does look her up and down in this first meeting with her and it's just yeah it's a nice little touch i know what you mean like he comes across as like they they toe the line between him being actually a bit of an idiot who presents himself as very clever and and being like a deus ex machina-esque like sherlock just supernaturally oh boom i've got it like what where's this come from yeah, yeah. there's no mind palaces and stuff like that <laughs> in this movie where like yeah. he figures out everything that's going wrong even if it does have a similar vibe maybe not to like sherlock sherlock but you know it, it's you can't do a detective mystery and not invoke Sherlock Holmes in some way. I mean, yeah, there's there's certain touchstones <laughs> that are just embedded in the genre and you cannot get away from Sherlock Holmes, you cannot get away from yeah. Agatha Christie. He even says, he calls her Watson later on, so yeah. And they sort of, you know, once they've interviewed all these people, they establish what they know so far, which... There's creaky stairs. Joni went upstairs to check on Harlan when she heard a noise. That woke Linda up. Walt saw Marta leave at midnight. Saw Harlan try and come down for like a midnight snack. Meg came home late. And the evidence of the blood splatter from him slitting his throat shows that like he did it himself. There was no one. There's no interrupted blood kind of thing. So it couldn't have been someone else. So yeah, but we do learn now. And this was a real shock that like 30 minutes in, they show you definitively the event. I mean, they will then... There is like a secondary layer that she is unaware of, but we learn that Marta will be our viewpoint character because while she doesn't tell anyone this, we view in her flashback, in her memory, that basically she inadvertently gave Harlan a huge dose of morphine and he slit his own throat and helped her cover it up because her mother is an illegal immigrant and any kind of police attention will probably expose that and and, and she throws the police off by using very choice words so she doesn't explicitly lie and Harlan thought all of that through and as I said I think Christopher Plummer and Anna de Armas have this great chemistry like when you see them playing Go and he's like this crotchety old man but like in a nice way to her kind of thing turning the board over because she's beating him that kind of thing they're really nice together and they establish the trick knife so early on and like I think specifically he's talking about Ransom like Ransom's the kind of person that like can't tell the difference between a prop knife and a real one or whatever and then that will literally happen at the end and I love that when she realises what's happened he is so fucking cut like she's freaking out as she should and he's like oh this would make a really good idea and he starts writing it all down and talking through how it's like an airtight method of murder I love this like little resurgence that Christopher Plummer's had these last couple of years because obviously like I think the most famous one is him getting brought in to 
to replace someone <laughs> someone in all the money in the world he gets an oscar nomination for that movie as well which he comes in very late and they have to reshoot a whole lot of stuff and then you have him showing up in this as this great fun supporting role which is just him getting to have a lot of fun and i think this is the scene where i'm like holy shit anna diarmas is like a fucking star she's great i was shocked i didn't know who she was before that it's the, it was the same thing with like cynthia Erivo in um bad times i was like who are you where have you come from yeah so i'm really excited to see her and stuff like daniel craig got her a role in no time to die because he enjoyed working with her so much in this until they had really good chemistry so she's probably just gonna die in like five minutes but hey nice for her to pop up in more big things i suppose yeah i mean like i have her on my five for best lead actress of Mm. 2019 at the oscars like i would give her a nomination in the heartbeat yeah she's so good in this because this movie probably falls apart if you're not sympathetic to Marta because they show you straight up she ostensibly did it but you want her to succeed in her efforts to cover it up because I said how like some people have complained that this is the central premise that they give it away but then like to counter that I love that it's basically it spends about an hour being a movie where she is trying and failing to cover it up and then like she does something really smart but then like she hasn't thought of this one thing kind of thing that she kind of fucked it up because the noise that Joni heard that woke her up was Marta being tripped up by Harlan. You'll see that Benoit will throw the go board on the floor on the carpet and it makes like no noise because it's light wood on on heavy carpet and that she impersonated Harlan coming down the stairs. They used uh, Daniel Craig's stunt double in that scene because it was like painfully obvious it was Marta through the glass even with that. So because even though she did it and even though we don't know the true like horrible nature of this family quite yet she's just such an implicitly lovely character that you just wanted to get away with it and then as we move into act two like you will see that this is one of the worst families in cinema like Walt offers to financially compensate Marta Benoit takes her on as a sidekick and we get this delicious idea of her like having to investigate herself and throw Benoit off without giving the game away yeah and you get all these like little great little things that she's doing like putting the magnet on the tape mm-hmm. because she realizes that like she didn't follow the, that's the what i mean about correctly. like he's come up with this like brilliant plan of how she can get away with it and then it's just like it's not that she's an idiot it's just these things will happen nothing will be as airtight as it is in a detective story which i guess is the point but um, also like she's presumably like running on adrenaline well yeah, yeah. properly <laughs> like she's stressed she's just watched one of her best friends die and i like uh, that they present it that way as well like because the, the family will immediately like accuse her of all kinds of stuff but it is presented as authentically like this man was my friend like i spent a long time with him he confided in me and like they don't have to be like oh he was a surrogate father or like there was some age inappropriate thing going on it's like no they're just good friends like they play go together and like give each other shit and it's fun like you said like those little things and like playing dumb as she walks back over her own footprints and the what the two wide shots of a dog bringing the piece of broken trellis <laughs> i laughed so hard when i saw both of those in the cinema like her like throwing it away in the background while benoit's looking at nana and stuff like that who for the record is younger than christopher Plummer, but never mind it's a really fun little stretch of the movie we also at this point get fran's secret stash of weed which <laughs> will pay off later benoit explaining his method like we said that like it's not quite as ridiculous as like the holistic detective or sherlock's mind palace but you know that he has his like little method of by his claim he just remains impartial follows the most logical 
chain of events and the truth just comes together for him. But there is that thing of, like, he's not that impartial because he's decided Anna's too... Uh, Marta's too nice to have done it. So he's a little bit hypocritical there. But we initially, as I said, we sit, Walt offers to take care of her and, like, you know, we see them having their little middle-class argument about immigrants, about Nazis are back, about red hats, and sort of recontextualizing the little beckon that Richard did at the party where, like, you know, when she's being interviewed, she's like, oh, yeah, they welcome me. And uh, you see him, like, smiling and calling her over and stuff. Like, oh, you're part of the family. And then when you see as it actually was, he was using her as a prop in his argument, reducing her to just her ethnicity and then, like, handing her the plate and, like, you know, you're one of the good ones. You're like, that you, type you did, of shit. You did, it, you did it properly, which yeah, by this yeah. point in the movie, we know that they didn't do it properly <laughs> and she isn't one of the good ones. Yes, she never corrects them when they're like, oh, yeah, you're legal but you know <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I mean I mean one of the one of the funniest things about the movie is like no one getting her ethnicity correct yeah yeah and you're from it... uruguay you're from paraguay you're from brazil it's the things that i like is the little repeated things that just reinforce how shitty they are the fact that almost everyone comes over to her and goes like i wanted you at the funeral but i was outvoted <laughs> yeah, and... it's like well if i add up how many people are outvoted it kind of seems like you all voted again yeah yeah and it's just these little things and it's like the phone niceties that so many of them have for this this yep. woman and obviously it comes to a head at the will reading but i just like how yeah. at a point where it's like well she'll be out of our lives in like <laughs> six months we'll give her a hundred grand out of the millions and millions we're going to inherit and that'll be a lovely thing we did and then she can fuck off forever or possibly even left less we'll give her 10 grand i don't know she doesn't yeah. know what money's worth yeah yeah it's whatever they have to hammer this home that we're going to take care of you because of what is about to happen. So Ransom arrives for the will reading where everybody is stunned to learn Harlan amended his will a week before his death and left 100% of his assets to Marta. So, two utterly delightful things here. One, Chris Evans as just an absolute cunt who just... Benoit is like, dogs are a good judge of character. They love Marta. They immediately bark at Ransom. I, I love all the little behind-the-scenes thing. Like, Chris Evans going like, yeah, I've got so many dog biscuits in <laughs> when I'm climbing out of this car. Known dog guy, Chris Evans, <laughs> having to be not liked by dogs. Ignoring the police, bossing the help around, calling Benoit CSI KFC, calling Meg a, a social justice warrior, like, and then his gorgeous eat shit, eat shit, eat shit routine, which was originally fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, but they wanted a lower age rating, so they changed it. But yeah, just him just coming in here and just being the complete opposite of Captain America is so delightful. It is really kind of that Hugh Laurie taking on the role of house kind of thing after being known for just these like dithering nice British people and then becoming the world's rudest American kind of thing. He's the nicest one. Well, that nice one. It, it's so nice to see him fully embodying something so soon afterwards, because obviously, like, he does this kind of role in Scott Pilgrim, which is <laughs> literally the year before he gets to do Captain America. And then yeah. he doesn't really do all that much in the middle of Captain America. Like, hell, I think Snowpiercer was filmed in the break between First Avenger and Avengers, or, like... So before we know he's going to be a star kind of thing. Back yeah. when we still thought it was a risk for him to be Captain America. But it, coming up, he does play predominantly like jocks and like dumb pretty mean people and stuff like that so it's nice to see him lean back into that like his terrific knitwear and everything so i made the mistake of after this movie trying to find a jumper <laughs> that he's wearing yeah. uh, not realizing how a how expensive those jumpers are mm -hmm. and b just whether or not they actually fit me or anything like that <laughs> and then now everything i see on the internet is an advert for this bloody jumper so like yeah. i literally cannot escape it now like the no. obviously the the clove side of the 
advertising is very strong because it wants to show you every single time I open a new webpage. They were very careful about dressing Ransom in nice clothes he doesn't look after. So, like, the sleeves are a little bit threadbare on that jumper, and, like, his shoes are a bit scuffed and all, you know. He, he is literally, like, the rich layabout who never learned the value of a dollar or all of that, like. This um, is one of my favourite little subsexes. This is a very similar, like, and I think probably the biggest comparison you can make to stuff in the media landscape at this point is Succession to this movie. Okay. Um, I really I, need to watch Succession just so I can get all of the comments you make all the time. So, but, the, but that's the thing is, like, it's very much that kind of thing. I think Succession is a bit less obviously funny while still being a, an incredibly funny. I don't know. I saw that dude rap badly. That was pretty funny. <laughs> it's incredible. We watched it the other night with my partner and she was just sat there mouth agape that they were doing it. It's... <laughs> um, but yeah, so like, but it's a very similar thing where like I like this idea that they're fully nailing how this kind of person dresses. And again, you see it in both of these shows and I think both Succession and Knives Out have commented it. Like, it's really fucking hard to find these clothes that look like this for the kind of budget that we're operating on. And you have to kind of like, a lot of it you have to make yourself find in thrift stores or, or all the rest mm-hmm. of it. But like, it's such a very particular look to dress these people to make it look like they are well-versed in money. And it's this kind of like hand-knit turtle neck kind of thing that really yeah. solidifies just like they are coming from money. You see his house later and it's just like a fucking modern architecture wet dream of these ugly houses that are like just, it's just a giant glass cube kind of thing. He is so well decorated both in his clothing, his car, his props, like everything is great. I need to check whether or not I put it for production design but like Knives Out is definitely one of the best Oh, production yeah. design movies of the year. It, it completely nails it. Like, when this kind of thing is good, it kind of goes unnoticed, sort of thing. I mean, there are little things that if you sit there looking, it's like, oh, that's nice. But, like, it all just comes together, and it's like, yeah, this is the world, this is these characters. Like, you've nailed it. Yeah, we will be discussing, like, the best production designed movie of 2019, but, like, this okay. is this is <laughs> up there in terms of just everything fitting together. And obviously so much yeah. of it is finding the right location that looks correct, and then you just have to decorate everything on top of it but like yeah. it is also spawn. So we learn that Jacob overheard Ransom and Harlan arguing about Ransom being cut off and like his gleeful yup when they're like, are you being cut off? And him just watching as they all just start arguing, like, Meg calls Jacob a, an alt-right troll, he calls her a liberal snowflake, you see um, Richard and Walt having this terrible slap fight between them, it's excellent. And then the speed with which they all turn on her is delightful. Ransom just laughs and leaves, they go, this is still our house, and then turn to Frank Oz who was like, oh right, yeah, sorry, and also she, she gets the house. Linda calling her a little bitch and it's like Richard do something kind of thing. it's like what, what's he gonna do Jacob calling her a dirty anchor baby um which is a line he improvised didn't pick up on camera because they were all just shouting Michael Shannon heard him say it and came to Ryan Johnson and was like you need to redo this and make sure you get him saying this because that's an excellent line <laughs> Yeah, and he, like, live streams all the chaos. I think we talked about this with uh, Booksmart, that, like, this is what teenagers do. They record drama and live stream it and get all the emojis popping up on the phone and everything. Yeah, I think Um, this is the most important social commentary this movie makes, is, like, these people hate each other and do not agree politically on any thing. (laughs) The moment the money is threatened, they circle the wagons and are, like... 
willing to defend each other until it's yeah crazy. like literally surrounding her car chasing her out of the house and like you know we're gonna take care of her and like you little bitch and, <laughs> and obviously this scene has like one of the most commented on moments in the movie where like the movie goes from steady cam to, to handheld footage as she's like walking from the house to the car and like yeah. it really does fit with the tone of everything but I like that like the revelation of like why it does this is because Ryan Johnson managed to break the camera and so they yeah. had to like take it off the stand to do this thing <laughs> <laughs> so Marta's overwhelmed, she takes up Ransom's offer to help her flee, he manipulates her medical condition to learn the truth, and then surprisingly he helps to offer her cover it up, but not that surprising because uh, he wants his cut of the inheritance that he was cut out of, and we'll learn there's much more to that soon, but it's at this point that, you know, we learn that Linda took that million dollar loan, that there's a prenup, and Richard owns none of her company so you know very risky business for him to be having an affair but you know him faking his empathy towards her like it's like oh is ransom actually nice and he just has no time for these assholes and it's like you know you have to do a little bit of willful disbelief because we saw him being such a prick to like the housekeeper and stuff but you know he comes across as like actually being decent and then it's like no no he's filling her stomach up enough to be reliable if she hasn't eaten anything she might not throw up kind of thing and then he fills us full of food and uh stuff asking her questions. Meanwhile, the family learned the Slayer rule. If she killed Harlan, she doesn't get the inheritance. And, like, all eyes go to Benoit, who is still just chilling in the house. Like, they throw out the police, they throw out Marta, all of this stuff, and he's just loitering around constantly. Yeah, he delivers that iconic line of, you know, I suspect foul play. They all decide she has to announce the inheritance. They unite, as we said. I, I love them telling um, Francois that he's useless, and then he takes it as a reason to go. Like, you are now without use, you may leave. While his, like, assistant is, like, asleep because they've been arguing for so long and Benoit tries to talk to Nana which will pay off much later but you know she is just mute and yeah everyone just ignores her and doesn't know how old she is so we're moving to act three which is the part that I think is the least good up until like the grand revelation but yeah I think the most the biggest issue with it it spends the most time away from the family yeah I think that might be it <laughs> and and obviously like so much of it is is like this isn't to say that Chris Evans is bad but like a lot of it rests on like his interactions with Martha and kind of being this like little chaotic thing and the cast kind of like pairs down quite a lot so it yeah. becomes almost a three-hander between Craig Evans and Diarmas. And you move away from the central location which is such a huge part of the vibe like you almost wish it was entirely a uh, closed room mystery or whatever so but yeah she gets blackmailed someone's got a toxicology report that will prove that there was foul play. Not, not to jump ahead too much but revelations and conclusions of the movie are like a bit too complicated in terms of like how everything fits together a little bit yeah <laughs> i kind of wish that we could somehow just go from she's getting everything to like just do a few more interviews and stuff and then go to that big jacques scene kind of thing like i don't feel the need for them to get away from the house and do a deliberately shit car chase and the secret meeting with fran and so like she spends some time with ransom ransom casually drops the fact that she was uh, he was harlan's research assistant briefly so that you know, sets up how he was so manipulative and everything. And the car chase is kind of funny in that, like, she's ignoring Benoit's calls and then he's just hanging out the window right next to her. He's like, I can see you. Like, you should probably answer. So that's fun. It's just, it's so long. I do like that 
she tells on herself because she's that good you know again she has too much conscience to just let fran die if she lets fran die she gets away with it alleged ostensibly except she probably wouldn't but you know she calls the cops on herself she tells benoit everything and it's just yeah it's just like it's 20 minutes half an hour where we're sort of away from the house or away from the family and it's just a little bit less interesting but we'll move forward and we will get them back to the house because benoit presents his final assessment that ransom tried to frame marta twice Harlan did commit suicide, and then Ransom tries to kill Marta with a fake knife and is arrested. They find the toxicology report in Fran's stash. It's when you get that nice little conversation, like I said earlier, you know, you're not much of a detective, you make a pretty lousy murderer, that kind of stuff. He's going on and on about the donut and the hole, and he says that line of like, it's not a donut hole in the donut hole, it's a smaller donut with its own hole. <laughs> and his his gorgeous uh, reading of the line, the Nazi child masturbating in the bathroom. <laughs> And yeah, so like Ransom switched the medications ahead of time, took the antidote away so that it couldn't happen. In sneaking back into the house yeah, to sort yeah. them back afterwards, get spotted by Fran and... I don't know if I think this is too much or not, but that they firmly established that Marta did give him the correct medication after all, because she imperceptibly, subconsciously knew which one was which, and that like, you know, she is just inherently good. She couldn't even accidentally be framed for this. That like she was running away from something she didn't even do. And not even just in the way that she was framed, in that like the framing didn't even work. And I do like that like you learn that Ransom it wasn't that his plan was coming together, it was like shit. She didn't actually doing anything. Learning that he hired Benoit. He's got a stack of New Yorker issues, I don't know, on the table. And you got that comment from uh, Joni early on that, like, she read about Benoit in an article in the New Yorker. So, like, little things like that. That, you know, he passed Fran's blackmail on from himself to Marta. And that, like, she wasn't saying you did this. She was saying Hugh did this because, because you make the help call you Hugh. Because you're an asshole. It's a cute little thing. It's the kind of thing that can come off as like, it, it's too much, it's too stupid, that like, she wasn't saying you, she was saying Hugh, but I think the work they do with the class story makes it come, makes it work. I love her throwing up on him, you know, faking that Fran is still alive and therefore will tell everyone everything. So then he's like, fuck it, and tries to kill her. And then of course, it's a trick knife. I think it's a two hour plus movie and I'm like, right, these first 45 minutes fly by, it's really great. Once you get into this section with her and Ransom, you become much more aware of the time. But then I think once you're back in the house and Benoit is explaining everything, even though that scene is about 20 minutes, it feels like five to me, personally. I know it's a little bit convoluted, but the much more pronounced sense of time passing when you're away from the house is, is quite profound, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's just because I think everything is so complicated outside of the house. Because obviously they haven't yeah. introduced all these different layers of here's the toxicology report. Why is there only half the toxicology report? Who is sending these emails? Why is the why is this being burnt down? Like this is when the movie's having to like become a murder mystery again. And I think I think it works. But it is the point in the movie where because they've done the thing where they've subverted the tropes of this kind of story, they have to at this point rebuild an entire mystery into what you're doing. Because up until this point that. The only mystery you've got functioning in the movie is who hired Benoit Blanc, and that isn't really driven home at this point. Like, there's a couple of throw-off lines, but it's definitely not, like, yeah. the thing you're trying to figure out over the course of the movie. You're more invested in how is Marta going to get away with it. Exactly, and that, I think that's why it works in spite of it being objectively less fun when they're out of the house, and, like, the, the blackmail aspect feels like an unnecessary extra wrinkle, but... 
I think the work that they've done with Marta as a character helps keep it moving. And and then, yeah, the film ends, like, Linda discovers Richard's infidelity because Harlan, like, confronted Richard and he had, like, a note and he was like, I'm going to give this to her unless she come clean or whatever. And then he goes looking for it and it's just an empty piece of paper. He's like, oh, the fucker was bluffing me. But then, like, Linda had made that comment about having their own way of communicating with each other and it's yeah it's invisible ink that she exposes with the lighter and then like the next time you see richard he's got a black eye which is a fun little very quick shorthand thing like it's it's more fun to see that than to see her punch him kind of thing that benoit like you know as i said like he he makes it clear that he saw the drop of blood on her the first time he saw her and you end with this just iconic shot of Marta standing on the balcony that she was looking up at at the beginning, looking down on all these bickering rich people, holding Harlan's mug that says, My house. Well, it also says, My rules, my coffee, but they make sure you see that my house bit the most. Yeah, and, it's, it's yeah. probably the best closing shot of any movie of 2019. Yeah. Fucking I mean, you've seen more of them than me, but I will agree <laughs> with you anyway. Yeah, just just a great final shot. It, it, it's the platonic ideal of the outcome of this mystery kind of thing. You get the fun little detective novel portraits of the cast at the end, which were painted by Ryan's cousin Zach and his other cousin Mark did the opening credits, and his other cousin Nathan did the music. So a family affair, this movie. I didn't know there with so many Johnsons, although that sounds dumb because it's a very common last name, but just a great movie. So obviously this movie gets nominated for one Oscar, gets nominated for Best Original Screenplay, yeah. um, which it loses to Parasite, which yeah, obviously that was going to happen. Is there anything else you could see yourself putting this forward? I think someone on this cast needed a nod. I think, like you said, the production design is incredible. Like, I think it's well written. I think it's well directed. Like, I wouldn't object to it getting nominated for like anything. Really. <laughs> what about you? Apart from Andy Armas, I'm not sure there's anyone that I could single out as being like this is a performance that definitely needs a nomination. Yeah, like, yeah it's that kind yeah. of thing where like certain award shows do ensemble casts. Kind of is it is it TV that does that? And this this is the kind of thing. I think they also do it at the SAG Awards. So the SAG okay. Awards does an ensemble nomination. If I did it get nominated for but yeah. like they so they definitely do like there's definitely a, a a TV ensemble award and there should be a movie ensemble award. like I, I do think and this should have won it. Outside performance by a cast and motion picture, yeah. The five that are nominated this year or last year for, for that are Parasite, Bombshell, Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I would throw out several of those to put those out <laughs> instead. It doesn't work unless the whole family, like every one of them is perfectly working together. And like they have to be equal. Or it doesn't work. Like you can't have a standout to get an Oscar nomination. Like you can't just be like, right, Jamie Lee Curtis is the most famous, so she has to have the most of the lines or whatever. It only works if they're sort of equal parts of a of a well, I want to say a triangle, but like it's more of a pentagon because if you throw in Richard and I guess Meg, who to the end, like I, I guess she's nice. I don't know. She does have that moment of weakness where like they tell her that she won't be able to go to her school anymore. Well, yeah, because... they blackmail her into guilting Marta, but like you can, she's crying while she's doing it. Kind of thing, so it's not yeah. like. But I mean, I guess she should have refused. But I, I guess it is the point though, where it's like they tell her that because the money's going to go away, she won't be able to go to her school. And I always read that as like that's her breaking point, where it's yeah. like I she doesn't my care education. about the money, but she cares about 
that everyone has different breaking points, like you say. So. Yeah, I mean, again, it's just it's just a fun movie full of so many different fun, different things. Like, I remember in the wake of the movie coming out, there were so many like Twitter threads and just people breaking it down and stuff like that. You've got all the different things where like I'm just trying to think of like favorite favorite moments now, like when they start saying how the family's been in their their lives for generations, and then Benoit's <laughs> just like he bought it in 1981. This is <laughs> you've yeah. owned this house for 40 years. This is not like yeah. something like not all of you were even born in this house i think it is that thing it nails it where like middle class americans love to present themselves as like self-made so historical like we we are our roots are in this town we built this town kind of thing and and they love these ideas of these houses that their great grandfathers built with their bare hands and whatever you know it's so great and like there are so many little things like marta having a cracked phone which you never see in film and TV. Maybe a drug dealer character will have one, but, like, plenty of people are walking around with cracked phone screens because they can't afford to get them fixed immediately. And there was that controversy about Ryan Johnson revealed that Apple don't let their products be used by, like, evil characters or, or, or whatever, so sort of giving the game away on every other show and stuff, but that's why she doesn't have an iPhone. <laughs> and I love all the little things down to the fact that the Blu-ray case... Like a <laughs> it little, points at ransom, doesn't it? It points at ransom on the back if you flip the case around. I love that Marta isn't a big thing on the case. I do think probably the biggest disservice this movie has is they can get away with Anna Diarmas being third build because mm. it looks like it's alphabetical. And his second build does a little bit give the game away. They are the two most famous currently relevant people. You know, you've got James Bond and Captain America, so I, I think that's easily hand-waved. Sure, it's probably, the, and obviously the movie isn't about like who did it at the end of the day, but Evan's size and the fact that he gets second build, you are drawn to him more than you are necessarily some other characters. And he is kind of presented as the only one of the family smart enough to actually pull off something complex. For being like a complete asshole, he is clearly actually quite clever. Yeah, like the whole thing of his relationship with his grandfather being about, I thought I was the only one who could beat him at Go. And again, like, when they're playing, he's like, how come I can never beat you? And she's like, you're playing a game and I'm just trying to make something, you know, it's in different words, but it's basically, I'm just nice, therefore I will win out in this very complicated whodunit mystery kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the complaints about Grabbins are very much a metatextual thing. Like, you go into this movie completely blind, not knowing where anyone is built in the movie, maybe you don't get that same feeling. It very much is just Hollywood politics, well, kind of. Ben, I love you, but most people don't pay any attention to this stuff. <laughs> All right, that is very fair. <laughs> we do, because we are big fucking nerds, but hey. So, as I said, this is my last posting job of this volume of the podcast. We got two left. Our penultimate movie will be Little Women. Which... An ultimate Ben's book club. Yeah. No, actually, no, our ultimate Ben's book club. There is no more Ben's book club after yeah. Little Women. So that's going to be fun for two reasons. Three, if you include Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> You've had Bob Odenkirk spoiled for you. Only a little bit. I'm sure it will be very different. But that is next week. Until then, Benjamin, we are left with one more mystery. Will there be movies? There will be movies and they will flash back and actually spoil the entire plot about 20 minutes in and then the rest of the movie will just be something else. <laughs> I look forward to that. Bye everyone.